After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died... The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains, from Mount Baal-Hermon to Lebo-Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This is God's word. Thanks very much for reading that to us, Pete. Um, as Pete said, um, my name's Andy, and I'm the children and youth worker here at Inspire St. James Clerkenwell. Uh, it's a great joy uh, to come and uh, speak to you from God's word this afternoon. Um, if you could keep your Bibles open at that page, 243, that we just had uh, read, that'd be really helpful. Um, but let me pray, um, and then we'll dive in. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like. We thank you that you are a speaking God. You speak through your word to us today. And thank you that like a faithful friend, you do not 
simply tell us what we want to hear, uh, but you tell us what we need to hear. So, Father, pray that uh, you would send your spirit, that we would be soft in our hearts to listen and to be changed, and that you would help me speak faithfully and clearly of who you are and who we are. Amen. So as we just heard that passage read to us, I wonder how it made you feel. Maybe you came to church uh, this afternoon hoping to be encouraged. Maybe hoping for something more upbeat than last week. Because last week, as we began our series in Judges, we saw the people disobey God. God's people disobey him and fail uh, to drive the other nations out of the land. Um, But at the end of the passage, uh, it was kind of unclear whether that disobedience was going to have lasting consequences or whether maybe the people might turn back to their God. Um, But today, uh, we're looking at what is in some sense a second introduction to the book of Judges. So again, uh, we start with the death of Joshua. um, But this time, the direction of travel is unfortunately clear. In that reading of 24 verses, we descend from a picture of success in chapter 2, verse 6, as the Israelites are are kind of released to go and enjoy their newfound material prosperity in the land that God has given them. Finally, they're there. And then by verse 15, they're in great distress, ruled uh, by other nations. By verse 19, over the page, you've got evil and corruption. And by the end of the passage what looks like a total loss of identity as the Israelites turn away from the one true God to serve the gods of the nations around them. And that uh, decline and fall of God's people that we see in this week's passage is actually the pattern of the whole book of Judges. Cheerful, isn't it? Um, it, it, What we're getting here is it's like a trailer for the movie so that as we watch the kind of full-length feature film Judges over the next few weeks we will have that big picture in our head as we go through the twists and turns and ups and downs of the full story. But you might well ask, what am I supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with this passage, with this book? Are we supposed to just kind of hold our Bibles in one hand and hold BBC News in the other and say, um, this is a mess, right? The, the world's a mess, it's getting worse and worse. Are we supposed to resign ourselves? to that reality? No. The Bible is always realistic, unflinchingly honest about how bad things can be and indeed how bad people can be. But it's never fatalistic. It's never resigned to things staying that way. And so God gives us this unvarnished, unflinching account of his people and their sin and their decline. Yes, to show us the depths of the darkness in our hearts, but also to reveal to us the depths of his mercy. To show us that no matter how far we fall, whoever we are, wherever we are, God never gives up on us. He never gives up on us. So so with that in mind, let's look together at how it all started to go wrong, how quickly faith is lost how quickly faith is lost. So uh, look down with me at chapter 2, verse 7, on page 243. Um, It tells us that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who'd seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. They served the Lord. Okay, come two verses down to verse 10. After that whole generation, the generation described in verse 7, had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up 
who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. So in one generation, you go from knew the Lord, sorry, from served the Lord, verse 7, to didn't even know the Lord, verse 10. Now, didn't know the Lord, that, that doesn't mean that they didn't have any knowledge of God or had completely forgotten all the things that God had done in the past. They might well have known quite a lot about God, but they didn't know God. You can know a lot about somebody without knowing them. They didn't know God. They didn't love God. They didn't serve God. And we have to ask why not, because it's not like God was caught unawares by this challenge of trying to pass faith in him down the generations. If we went back a couple of books in the Bible uh, to Deuteronomy, um, chapter 6, verse 6, uh, Moses is instructing the people as they're about to enter the land. And he commands them that these commandments, God command, God's commandments that I give you today, are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And then in verse 12 of that same chapter, he specifically warns the people. He says, be careful that you don't forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So that's the plan. What went wrong? Did, did the older generation forget to impress God's commands and the stories of his rescue on the younger generation? Or did the younger generation, in their hardness of heart, choose to forget everything the older generation had told them? We're not told. It doesn't say. And either way, the fact that a generation that served the Lord is immediately followed by a generation that didn't know the Lord, that should sober us. It should shake us a bit, I think. Because like the generation that, that forgot the Lord, that younger generation, they were growing up in a world suddenly full of all these different nations and all these different gods and all these different ideas of, of what life should look like. And in the same way, the children and young people growing up in, in this church family and in this city um, face uh, what Charles Taylor, the sociologist, calls a cross-pressured age. A cross-pressured age. It's the idea that rather than being a kind of a giant bubble where everything, everybody in my bubble thinks exactly the same way that I do, Every day they're surrounded by people, as we are, surrounded by people who believe different things to us, who follow different gods, who um, every day they're bombarded through, and we're bombarded, through our screens, our phones, through uh, the as we walk past on the tube. We're bombarded with a million different visions of what life should be. The world is impressing its claims to truth on us every day whether we notice it or not. And so we, as a church family, so parents, but godparents, uncles and aunts, grandparents, crest leaders, kids leaders, everybody, we must impress upon our children the truth about God. Now, that, that doesn't mean trying to give your children, as the parents we here, but glad to hear, doesn't mean trying to give them a 30-minute Bible lecture every day. Though, of course, we do want them to be hearing from God's word day by day. The picture we get in Deuteronomy with that kind of language of oh, as you walk along the road, as you sit down, is weaving the sharing of faith into the fabric of our day-to-day -day lives. So to give you a flavour of the kind of thing that might look like, my, my dad um, my dad loves the Beatles. I think the Beatles are the best band ever. M many people of his generation are of that, that view. Um, and when me and my brother were small, he was very keen to pass on the Beatles. You know, not, not, not to let us get kind of distracted by this modern music that wasn't as good. Um, but funnily enough, he didn't sit us down for long periods of time and explain to us the genius of the Beatles. He just made sure that whenever we were in the car, it was the Beatles that were on. 
So as you interact with the next generation, whether it's every day as parents, whether it's at church on a Sunday, whether it's at family gatherings through the year, how could you weave your faith if you're a follower of Jesus? How could you weave your faith into normal conversations? How could you impress on children and young people the truths of God? How could you make sure that faith is not quickly lost? But of course, it works both ways. The younger generation have to listen and take hold as well. We can't make, I can't make as a children and youth worker, I can't make the children and young people in this church trust in God and his saving work. Parents can't, we can't do it. We can't ensure they won't forget him. We can't ensure they stick with him because that is a work of God's spirit. Only God can do that. And that's why most of all we have to pray. So I think as a children and youth worker, one of the great fears is that you'll, you'll see people walk away. That as they grow up, you'll see people walk away. And I long that that doesn't happen to any, any one of the children and young people in this church family. And, and, and that longing drives me to prayer, not as much as I should, but drives me to prayer because only God can keep them. Only God can do that. And so will you join me in that prayer that faith will not be quickly lost in this church? So that's how things start to go wrong, how quickly faith is lost. And then what we see is that once a generation grows up not knowing the Lord, well then sin spirals out of control. That's the second thing for us to see, the downward spiral of sin. Um, Look down with me at verse 11. Straight after the verse we had read, um, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. That's the Canaanite fertility gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They, forsook, they, they, they cheated on the one true God with various, peop, various gods of the peoples around them, it says. Uh, and as you can imagine, if you've ever been cheated on yourself, God's, God's angry. And so it tells us, verse 14, that in his anger, the Lord gave Israel into the hands of raiders, into the hands of their enemies. Sin has consequences, and by the end of verse 15, the Israelites were in great distress. But verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. But then these judges turn out to provide only a partial, a temporary rescue. Verse 17, the people would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. And then verse 19, over the page, when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. And so the spiral continues. The people sin. God in his anger gives them into the hands of their enemies. They groan in distress. God relents and gives them a judge. The judge dies. And they go straight back to sinning again, even worse than before. That's, that's the pattern of judges, round and round and round in that downward spiral. And the question we have to ask is why? If we, want to, if we want to not get caught in that spiral ourselves, we need to understand why did the people keep returning to their sin? Well, look with me at the end of verse 18 on page 244. Second half of verse 18, it says, The Lord relented. He sent them judges because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. It tells us that the people groaned under the consequences of their sin. But it says nothing about them crying out in sorrow at their sin itself. It it seems seems that judges were raised up because the Lord relented, not because the people repented. They hate the consequences of their sin, sure, they hate being ruled by the people, but they don't hate the sin sin itself. They, They don't hate what they're doing to God only what God justly does to them. And so as soon as they're saved from the consequences of their sin, straight back 
And the writer here, and the spirit as he inspires the scripture for us, doesn't want us to make the same mistake. He longs for us to hate our sin so that we don't get caught in this spiral. And so, sin is presented here brutally in all of its ugliness. In these verses, sin is more than disobedience. It is cheating on God. The, the, the image is that we're in a relationship with him, we're married to him, and then when we sin, what we're doing is going, to some, going somewhere else to someone else for the satisfaction or security or comfort or pleasure or whatever it is, all those things that we should have been looking for in him. So, so verse 12 says that they forsook the Lord, right? Not they disobeyed the Lord, though that would be true. They forsook the Lord. Now, in the marriage service, when I, when I got married to Rose two and a half years ago, um, one of the things that you, say, you promise is that the vicar says, do you promise to be faithful to her, forsaking all others? And the Israelites have turned that upside down. That they're forsaking the one person they should be faithful to and running off with others. And then at verse 17, they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. I don't know what you make of that language. It's shocking, isn't it? God, God describes his people's sin as prostitution. As the act of a wife who refuses to listen to the pleas of her husband and heads out into the red light district to sell herself to someone else. And you might be thinking, what? Like, it, it just seems so extreme. The language seems so, so distant to us. We, we might be able to kind of stretch our imaginations to the idea of our, our behavior being comparable to cheating, but, but the idea that our acts or our hearts could be compared to, to prostitution. And yet the word's there. Stubbornly there in the pages of scripture. It's the words that God has chosen to say to us about the nature of sin today. Because he wants to shake us, to, to shock us almost into grasping the relational character of our sin. He wants us to see what we're doing to him when we go elsewhere for ultimate satisfaction and security. So imagine you're chatting to, to a couple, you, you know, or actually probably one member of the couple, and you're asking them about how their relationship's going, and they say, yeah, yeah, it's going all right, actually. I'm faithful about 90% of the time. Nine days out of ten, I, I don't cheat on them. You'd want to shake them, right? And say, what, what do you mean nine days out of ten? What do you mean nine? Like, that, that is what God's trying to say. He's, he's saying, that's what sin is. When we compromise with sin in our lives, when we leave that last 10%, because what we've done all right, we're cheating on him. And so, if you're sitting here today, and honestly... If you look inside yourself and you, you kind of try and take, take off the mask that you wear even, even to yourself, you realise that, that you are relying day to day on your current partner or maybe even a hoped for future partner for ultimate security. That, that you're looking to them rather than to God for the assurance that you are truly loved. Well, could it be that you're in fact cheating on the one true God who loves you. If you're sitting here today and you know that as you go to work tomorrow, and this is all too familiar for me, you know that when you go to work tomorrow, you'll be looking to make a name for yourself. And what you'll be doing is you'll be looking to worldly success 
rather than God to give you your identity, your sense of who you are? Or could it be that, that work has become your God's and you're prostituting yourself, working that extra hour in return for the promise of becoming a somebody? I don't know, do, do you see your sin like that? Do you want to be like that? Or will you repent, turn around, turn back, come home and be faithful? And the thing is, when we start to see sin that way, uh, as more than disobedience, as cheating on God, not only does it kind of repel us, it shows us the true ugliness of sin, but God's anger at sin starts to make sense. Okay, so I don't know what you made of the fact that it tells us that this Israel sin aroused the Lord's anger. Maybe it made you feel uncomfortable. For many years, that was one of the parts of Christianity that made me feel incredibly uncomfortable, the idea that there's an angry God out there. Why, why, why can't God just be merciful and forgiving? Why do I have to talk about an angry God? But, but, but when we see that, that according to the Bible, God is, is a husband and we are his bride, well, then his anger and love are two sides of the same coin. So imagine again that, that couple I had you imagining a couple, of, a couple of minutes ago. And imagine you're talking to uh, the husband and, and the wife. He knows that the wife is, is cheated on him. And you're chatting away and kind of trying to, trying to support and work it through. And you realize that he's not bothered. You realize he doesn't actually care. What would you think? I think you'd think he didn't love her. I think that if, if, if he loved her, he'd be angry. Jealous, upset. It's the same with God. It is because he loves us that he is angry when we sin, when we, when we cheat on him. But, but wonderfully, these verses don't just reveal God's loving anger at sin. They reveal the astonishing depths of his mercy in the face of sin. However far along the downward spiral of sin we travel, we never, wonderful truth, we never go beyond the depths of God's mercy. We never get beneath it. And that's the final thing for us to see, the depths of God's mercy. So we see, we see it first in this passage in his rescues. So verse 16, in response to the people's groans and distress, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, out of their enemies. And then, and then verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge with them, he was with that judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies for as long as the judge lived. God rescues them. He saves them from their enemies. And as we read through Judges, we'll see God do this time and time and time again. No matter how far his people descend into evil and sin, God keeps on sending rescuers. Not, not because the people finally get it, it clicks, and they're like, oh yeah, no, we're making a horrible mistake. God, we're really sorry, we repent. No, 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 they don't repent. They just go round and round and round, and God keeps sending them rescuers, purely because he cannot bear their distress. Because he loves them. That's the heart of God. He's like, he's like a father whose teenage daughter is running with the wrong crowd. Involved in the wrong kind of things. And to be honest, when she's at home, does nothing but yell at him. And yet on the night when he gets that call at like midnight, and, and through, the, through the tears and the sobs, his daughter's saying that the party she's gone to tonight is scared. She didn't wasn't what she expected. She's, she's scared. She, she's lost. Of course he gets in the car or on the bus to get her, to rescue her. That's the heart of God. 
We see the depths of God's mercy in his rescues. But perhaps strangely, we also see the depths of God's mercy in his judgment. I don't know how, you know, that sounds like it might not work. How can God be, be merciful to us in judgment? Well, well, look at verse 20 on page 244. So it says that because the sin of Israel grew worse and worse, they were going down this spiral, it says the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, Right, so stop there. That's, that's the charge. That's what they're guilty of. They've violated the covenant. They've, they've broken the agreement that God has made with this people. That, that, that relationship has been shattered by their rebellion, by their cheating. And, and if you went back to the end of Deuteronomy 28, it's since when that agreement was set up, the promised consequence for that kind of breakdown in that relationship, that rebellion, is total destruction. God says, if you do that... I'll destroy you. And that would be totally just because Israel are just as bad. They're falling into the ways of the nations that God has just used them to destroy. And so he'd be totally justified in destroying them too. But instead, he shows his people mercy even in judgment. Verse 21, here's the judgment. I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. Instead, I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. So instead of destroying his people, God decides to test them. Three times in these verses, down to 3 verse 6, we're told that God let the other nations remain as a test. He's giving his people another chance, an opportunity to relearn dependence on him, to come back to him as they face continued conflict with other nations. To learn what it is to to serve him, to follow him again. He is suspending, not cancelling, suspending his judgment to give them another chance. So um, it's a bit like a a recent court case. I don't know if you've uh, seen it. There's a a medical student called Lavinia Woodward, apparently quite talented. um, And under the influence of of drugs and alcohol, um, she had an argument with her boyfriend, lost it a bit, stabbed him in the thigh with a bread knife. Guilty. Guilty as charged. Um, and found guilty in court of unlawful wounding. That's the technical term. Now, that, that is a prison sentence level offence. That's not a kind of 100 hours of community service, right? Um, but the judge handed down a suspended sentence. He said, yeah, yeah, you, you deserve prison, but I'm going to give you time, in that case, to tackle your alcohol and drug addiction. Because I don't want you to get stuck in that cycle of what prison can do to people. I I want you to turn your life around. And and whatever you think of the sentencing in that case, (laughs) it's controversial to say the least, um, you can see the principle at work, which is that a merciful judge suspends judgment to give the defendant a chance to get back on the right track. So God is merciful in rescue, and he's merciful in judgment, but all the time despite an unfaithful and unrepentant people And yet, I don't know if it's just me, but it's very unsatisfying, this passage. (laughs) Because it feels like there's something partial, something temporary, something limited about the effects of God's mercy. So so God and his mercy raises up rescuers, and they do provide relief for a time. But they cannot truly bring the people back to God. And once they die, all hell breaks loose again. God and his mercy tests his people rather than destroying them. But there's no evidence they're going to pass the test. No reason to think they're going to return to him. It's as if 
Um, The mercy God shows in this passage can stem the flow of human sinfulness towards death and judgment, but it can't reverse the tide. Humanity is, is so lost, so evil, so forgetful, so stubborn, that we need more. What we see in this passage isn't enough. We need more than a human judge. We need more than a stay of execution. We need a judge who never dies. We need a judge who's always with us. We need a judge who doesn't just save us from the consequences of our sin, but leads us back to true repentance. Uh, We need more than to have the judgment of God suspended. We need it cancelled. We need it taken away. And God will do it. God has done it. This is the true depths of the mercy of our God. Despite our marital unfaithfulness, despite our cheating, despite our prostitution, like our husband who accepts a wife back, after all of that, God gives us himself completely in the person of his son, Jesus. He gives us himself. He doesn't send us a never-ending line of human judges. He sends us his son who died and rose again and is alive forever and ever, he will never die. Uh, His son who leads us now by his spirit so that we can have the power to truly repent. God doesn't just suspend his judgment on sin. No, he sends his son to bear the judgment for our unfaithfulness. As he dies on the cross, as he is utterly destroyed. God himself steps lovingly into the pages of human history so that rather than simply stemming the flow of human sinfulness, he can reverse the tide. In Christ, he breaks the downward spiral and brings us back to himself. Our sinfulness runs deep. But his mercy goes deeper still. And so, as I close, do you see that in the light of of that kind of mercy in the light of what what God has shown us of himself in Christ we're safe to look unflinchingly at the darkness of our own hearts it's safe to acknowledge that every time we look to someone else to to provide us with the ultimate security we crave every time we do that we're cheating on God We can admit that to ourselves. It is safe to acknowledge that every time we ask worldly success of any kind to give us ultimate satisfaction, to give us our sense of identity, that we're prostituting ourselves. We can admit that. It's safe to be realistic about how bad we are because we have a God who looked at the people who prostituted themselves to other gods and sent them rescuer after rescuer after rescuer. That is our God. We have a God who looked at a people who'd forsaken him And out of his longing for them to come home, suspended his judgment. And we have a God who looks at us, at our unfaithfulness, and gives us himself in the person of his son to bear the judgment for our sin. To rise to new life. That we might be free from the power of sin and death. Free to live faithfully with him forever. God smashes the spiral to pieces so that no matter how far down the spiral of sin you are, you can know that God has not given up on you. He never will. And if we're honest, 
about our unfaithfulness, if we hate what we are doing and have done to God, if we repent and turn back to him, he will forgive and rescue and restore us. He will. As we're about to sing, our shame was deeper than the sea. His grace is deeper still. Let me pray. Father, it seems too good to be true that you would look upon us in all of our ugliness and have us back. You would send us yourself in the person of your son to bear the judgment for our sin, to rise to new life, that we might have a judge who never dies that we might have your spirit at work in us to bring us to true repentance. It seems too good to be true, but it's here and it is true. And so, Father, give us that confidence in your mercy that will allow us to face what's worst about ourselves and to ask you to come into our lives and make us new for the sake of this world, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your Son, in his name we pray. Amen.